0: Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Ensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Australian horror movie director and genre aficionado Jamie Blanks. Jamie made a name for himself with his 1998 feature film debut Urban Legend, a neo-slasher movie that came out in the wake of Wes Craven's Scream movies and which told the story of a madman whose killings are based on popular urban legends the great cast of people like Alicia Witt, Jared Leto, Joshua Jackson, Robert England and Brad Dourif, and a keen sense of style, the film became a hit which spawned two sequels. Jamie then made another stylish slasher movie, Valentine, which took its cues from the Italian Giallo movies and again featured an excellent cast of actors like Marley Shelton, Jessica Capshaw, Denise Richards and Catherine Heigl. Jamie directed two more movies in his home country, the grim, intense backwoods horror movie Storm Warning and a remake of an Australian 70s cult classic, Long Weekend. In recent years, he's worked as an editor and composer, most notably for popular Mark Hartley B-movie documentaries like Electric Boogaloo or Not Quite Hollywood. In our conversation, Jamie discusses how he got the opportunity to direct Urban Legend after he was originally briefly involved with another well-known horror film of that era. He talks about his stylistic choice and the screen history of some of his actors, and he recalls receiving some very good advice from Wes Craven himself. We also discuss Jamie's other movies and talk about how his student short film Silent Number paved the way for urban legend. We talk about the feminist tendencies of Valentine, the extreme aspects of Storm Warning, the challenges of remaking Long Weekend, his influences, the appeal of Australian horror movies, and much more. Jamie even teases a new project he's working on as a director. The interview with Jamie Blanks was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz, So if you speak German, please visit www.lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 51, which features an in-depth discussion of the first two urban legend movies. Also, make sure to listen to Talking Pictures episode number 18, in which I talk to the director of the urban legend sequel, renowned editor and composer John Ottman. If you enjoy my conversation with Jamie Blanks, please visit www.talkingpicturespodcast.com to check out our other interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So, without any further ado, here is Talking Pictures with Jamie Blanks discussing how he came on board of Urban Legend.
1: Uh, the, the way I got the movie was um, I heard that they were putting into production uh, another film by the guy who wrote Scream. It's called I Know What You Did Last Summer. And I. Um, I'd missed out on Screen, even though they sort of put me on a list of con- potential candidates because of my short film, and I didn't want to miss out on the next one, so I thought I'll, um, I'll shoot a trailer for the script to prove them that, that I know what I'm doing, because I had about $4,000 worth of, um you know, spare cash that I could throw at it, and um, so I went out and just uh, shot elements from the screenplay that I thought, you know, if I if edited the, if, if the whole film had been shot and I was editing a trailer, what would be the the moments from the film that I'd want for the trailer, and I just went out and shot those little elements and, and, and cut together this little trailer that I sent to the producer. Uh, unfortunately, it got there uh, after they'd already signed a director, but he did a fabulous job, and you know Jim Gillespie did, you know, he, he, he did as much as anyone for keeping that um, '90s sort of slasher resurgence happening. Um, but the producers of the film promised me; um, they will say, "Look, you either direct the sequel to this movie, or we'll find something else for you." to do, and less than a year later, true to their word, they contacted me with the screenplay for Urban Legend, which had been in development and was going to be fast-tracked into production. They, they brought me over in January of, of 1998, and the film was set to start shooting in Toronto in April, sort of late mm-hmm. April, and um, so they hired me based on the trailer um, that I'd made and my short film, and my, obviously my passion for the, for the project. And, um, you know, I, I, I had a strong vision for how I saw the movie working. I thought the concept was really strong. I'd never seen anyone actually... Ta- I'd seen urban legends turn into movies before, like When a Stranger Calls, and there's this episode of that Joseph Sargent anthology movie, uh, Nightmares, that was done in 1983. Um you know, other, other films have been based on urban legends. Alligator by John Sayles and Joe Dante. Mm-hmm. Was, not Joe Dante, too, Lewis Teague had been uh, based on an urban legend. So... I just thought it was fun to take uh, that premise and use it as the basis of a slasher film, as it was a really inventive take on um, the slasher movies. And it was a different way to go after Scream had kind of uh, sort of turned the genre inside out and kind of done a very meta approach to horror films. I thought, you know, uh, this would be a smart angle for another um, film appealing to that same kind of market. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, they brought me on board, and it was all systems go. It was just hit the ground running and, tr- and get get the film um, ready to shoot.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, the script was uh, pretty far ahead at that time or pretty much locked? Uh, was it
1: wasn't locked. It was it had been developed pretty extensively by, by Silvio and Gina Matthews, one of the producers. And then Silvio and I got together, and we spent a lot of time working um, while I was casting and, and, and crewing the movie. We spent a lot of time working and fine-tuning the script. Uh, even bringing Silvio up to Toronto once we'd started scouting locations and reworking sequences from the movie to suit the locations that I was going to shoot in. So um, that, that, that work kind of was ongoing um, all the way through the first couple of weeks of production. Silvio was up there helping and, uh, and working with me on the script. But essentially the story had kind of been figured out in broad strokes before, um, before I came on. Mm-hmm. The, the, ending, the, the ending of the movie was my idea. The, the, the coder at the end, we were trying to figure out how to end the film. And it was my idea to bring Rebecca back that way and sort of oh. have the whole film being told as a story. So that was kind of a fun uh, ending.
0: Was, was that ending kind of a reversal of uh, John Carpenter's The Fog? <laughs> it sort of was.
1: <laughs> One of my favorite movies.
0: Uh. I, I kind of
1: liked the idea that it was all being told by uh, a, 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 a group of kids telling a story. It was, it was, it, it, it was definitely in, in my mind that um, that movie Mm-hmm. which was the film that sparked my interest in filmmaking in the first place.
0: I see. And I think the the, uh, the font that you use in all of your credits, I think that's John Carpenter font, right?
1: It's Albertus, yes. The, the font that Carpenter used from everything, I think it started in Escape from New York and mm-hmm. went all the way through to Bay Live. So, uh, yeah, that was my nod of the hat to to the, the filmmaker that got me interested in directing and, and scoring for mm-hmm. film.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So were you interested in, in urban legends before you made the film? Did you study them? Well, I, I, I,
1: I'd heard, I heard of all the urban legends. I mean, I'd heard all the, the folklore stories. So um, it, as soon as I read the script, I, um, I recognized all of them, and I just thought it would be fabulous. Because if, if I recognized them in Australia, I figured they they have pretty much worldwide appeal. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be just something that American audiences would uh, relate to. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because also your um, the, the short film that you mentioned, uh, Silent Number, that's kind of like two urban legends conflated into one, basically, right? The, yeah. The babysitter and the phone call and the vanishing hitchhiker, I think.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, there was definitely um, – I always found those stories uh, appealed to me because there was always a good twist mm. at the end, and I, and I thought it was important when you're making a short film You've got to set up an interesting premise. You've got to develop it in an unexpected and surprising way. And then you've got to pay it off with a twist like a good episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, a lot of my filmmaking, fellow uh, uh, film students were doing kind of um, personal dramas and things like that. I, I was very much like, genre focused. And, um, and all, all the student films I made always had a twist at the end. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, that's definitely where Silent Number was kind of inspired from, from that kind of world.
0: Do you remember the, the first urban legend that you heard?
1: Yeah, I mean the first urban legend I heard was The was the Babysitter and The Man Upstairs. That was the one that always killed me. I think it was because of the, of the movie When A Stranger Calls that I saw um, in my formative years along with a whole lot of other important 80s films that kind of set me on that path. Um, that was the first one I remember distinctly being an urban legend.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, does Australia have different urban legends than America?
1: Uh, I don't know. We, 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 there's, a, there's a sort of a, a legend of uh, a, a bunyip, but, but, all, but all different cultures have their own urban legends. I mean, there's urban legends that are specific to all parts of the world. So um, there weren't any particularly Australian ones that I, that I wanted to bring in. The, the most famous ones are the ones that we used in the movie. Mm-hmm. I always said, I, I pity the person who's got to make the sequel to this film because we've gone and used all the, all the really good ones. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, actually, the first one I ever heard was the one where uh, the boyfriend's death, uh, you know, in the car in the woods and then oh, you're yeah. scratching on one. the roof. And, um, it, I think obviously... I
1: remember hearing that one in Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre talks about the hook. And I remember reading about that. And that, I think that was the first time I heard that particular urban legend was through Stephen King and mm-hmm. uh, that book.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting too that um, since you were supposed to do, uh, I know what you did last summer. Again, that has that urban legend, uh, the basis in urban legend with a man with a hook.
2: Yeah,
1: well, I, I, I know what you did last summer appealed to me very much because the the setting and and uh, a lot of the elements in the film reminded me of the fog, and um, you know I'd always wanted to to do that film just because of all that iconography associated with it, but. Um, I got there just a little bit too late. But they, they, yeah, they would have been very happy for me to direct that movie had I got my trailer to them a couple of weeks earlier. But then, you know, I'm, I might not have ended up directing Urban Legends. So I'm very happy with the, with the movie I ended up making first. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I was delighted to make that film.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's a good trade off. Um, I think it's a, a very good project. Yeah. Now, were there yeah. any, any Urban Legends that you were hoping to include or that were discussed um, and then didn't end up in the script?
1: Well, not really. All the ones that we sort of looked at um, uh, ended up in the sequel. Um, the ones we kind of thought about maybe using, they were, never, they were never as good as the ones that we had in the script. So we didn't really um, feel the need to swap any of them out. Mm-hmm. Um, we managed even to get like the old lady who drives her microwave, we're dogging the microwave in there. And we had, uh, you know, lots of fun, even the the frat party. Uh, there's a lot of characters dressed uh, with famous urban legends, like there's, a, there's someone with a bit of spider, egg, a spider nest inside their wig, and, all, and we had all sorts of fun with the, with the frat party there too. So we we managed to pack a hell of a lot of urban legends in as many as we could.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure that must have been fun going through all those the the folklore stories and and, um, and which, which oh, is basically it a, um, a history of horror in a way.
1: That's right, well i mean the the only one um, that would have been really lovely to, to film that they ended up shooting as a reshoot in the sequel was the kidney heist, but we we kind of allude to the kidney heist like that's going to be Rebecca's penultimate revenge against Natalie is to uh to to cut out her kidney, but um she's she's, she's interrupted before she can finish fortunately for Natalie mm-hmm. but yeah we we sort of were building up to that to that one that we didn't end up um quite going through through with like they did in the sequel mm
0: mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm. Now what I, what I really like about all those sequences is I think they capture the essence of those urban legends very well in that they, um, like the basic premise of that legend, um, like the grisly fates of the characters and that the, the part that makes them creepy um, is all in the movie and you sort of um, forget the fact that they don't really make much sense if you start thinking about them logically.
1: Yes, that, that's credit to Silvio that he managed to weave them all in there and keep the plot moving fast enough that you don't have too much time to stop and think about
0: it. <laughs> like, I mean, case in point, the um, the opening segment, which I think is brilliant, it's one of the, the the best opening segments uh, of any horror movie. Um, in in, uh, oh, thank you. Um, I think that that's a, like a standalone short film almost. Um, yeah,
1: it was a movie within the movie.
0: Yeah. And if you if you think about it, I mean, it doesn't really make much sense to kill somebody while they're driving. I mean, if you're in the back seat, it,
1: yes. Yeah, well, that, that, that's why there's this strange dissolve as the axe goes through the window and we just sort of dissolve and it disappears, and then we quickly cut away because mm-hmm. um, she was travelling at speed in a in a, <laughs> in a thunderstorm. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make a whole. But look, look, Brenda was committed to her theme, and um, she was really willing to put her own life at risk in order to carry through. Uh, her plan. So mm-hmm. I always thought, you know, full points to Brenda. She's definitely uh, nothing if not um, resourceful and hardworking, and <laughs> she she sticks to her topic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's true. Killers are often very dedicated people, and they're often very admirable in their determination. I think. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> very committed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, was the casting of, of Brett Dourif in that segment, um, was that sort of a like a, a reference to his history in horror films?
1: Oh, it certainly was. It's funny, It was when I read the script, he was the first character that popped in, he was the first actor that kind of popped in my head as I was imagining that scene, and I guess it was because he played that stuttering character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm um Billy Babbitt, and if you look at the um the gas station, it's it's b and b gas, so that we had we had a little <laughs> bit of a reference to cuckoo's Nest there and um and uh, also obviously he has that great voice, you know when he had to scream the line, I just remember his lines in child's Play, he's just he sounds wonderful when he's screaming at the top of his lungs. he's just got he's just got this commanding presence and this great mm. voice. so um yeah, Brad was the first and only person I really considered for that role, and I was delighted when he said he'd he'd do it.
0: And also because he's such a, he he always plays the villain, the psychopath, um, and so once he turns up in the movie and he has that Brad Dourif look <laughs> in his eyes, you sort of oh uh, yeah,
1: he's playing. He's, we're totally using all his screen baggage to our advantage, like like we did with Robert England. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's it's you want you want to immediately think that he's that he's a villain, so it's uh, it was perfect. It worked it worked on multiple levels to to cast Brad in that role.
0: So that was a an, an interesting time, I think, in in horror films where. Right after Scream, horror films became so self-aware and like you say, um, had this meta level in it that they were um, sort of uh, putting in all those references to pop culture, to other other horror movies, um, to have that additional um, sort of wink to the audience. Was there a lot of discussion um, how much you you wanted to move into that direction or... um,
1: Oh, I just suggested uh, names that that I that I wanted in the movie, like Daniel Harris and Robert England um, mm-hmm. to Phoenix, and they were hundred percent behind it. They just they just thought, look, you know, um, no one knows the genre or loves the genre more than I did on that project, and they were very happy to kind of be guided by, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm making this movie for for me because I know if I'm if if I'm happy with this film, a lot of other horror fans are going to love it too. And they were fun- they were wonderfully supportive with all those decisions that we made. They um they, they completely got behind it all.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's part of the fun, I think, spotting those references and and like seeing Danielle Harris, who comes with her own history. Yeah. Like you know, oh, that's the girl from Halloween four and five. Um, that that sort of um, adds like if you're a horror fan, that's uh, something that's very enjoyable. But I think there's always yeah. a, a danger of of doing too much of that. Like to um, yeah, we
1: just tried to we just tried to have just enough of it so that it was a bit of fun. I mean it made so much sense cuz Robert England's character was a red herring in the movie. Um it, 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 but you never really think that it's going to be him even though the story points in that direction, you know, quite <laughs> quite heavily, but we just thought we'll, we'll we'll use their um their past horror film um, history uh, to our advantage and, you know, if we'd gone overboard with it it would have just been a whole of stunt casting, but because we just sprinkled a little bit of it throughout the movie. I think um that's why it works
0: mm-hmm. yeah there's also a couple of references like the foxy brown um reference yes. with um the, <laughs> the cop or the dawson's creek joke which uh, i love <laughs> i didn't get it yeah, then exactly. because i didn't yeah, that watch was, that the, was the series but um a couple of years later yeah, I got my
1: it. idea at the time i said on one take to josh i said just just react as though the theme song for dawson's creek comes on the radio and he and he gave us that reaction and we put the song in in editing and It was the one moment that tested highest out of the entire film with the audience. So (laughs) we had to spend the money and buy that song for whatever a second and a half that it appears in the
0: movie. (laughs) Yeah, again, I think it's 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 a a, like a perfect little moment because it's not overboard. It's just this little the the, the face that he makes. It's a throwaway.
1: Yeah, yeah to uh, throw away a little bit of meta uh, humor that just it was it was kind of key because it lets the audience in on the joke that um you know that that we're not taking this whole thing too seriously that everyone's having a bit of fun with it and I think you know that stuff goes a long way
0: i think the the era is also interesting um in terms of how much horror moved into the mainstream at that point um like if you look at the eighties horror was pretty much still a like an underground thing, something that was for, you know, a, like a specialized group of people, so to speak. Yes, um, yes, it and, was. And then was, Scream sort of invigorated the whole thing and and moved it into the mainstream. So um, you had bigger production values and bigger names attached to it. Um,
1: yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was the third time Wes Craven had a, a gigantic impact on the genre. I mean, the first time was with his last house on the left and the hills have eyes kind of ushering in that, that whole era of, uh, of really dark, r- ultra-realistic uh, survival 70s uh, horror. And then with Nightmare on Elm Street, he brought that whole element of rubber reality into the slashes genre in the 80s. And then with Scream, he kind of, um, you know, he sort of turned the genre on its head. I mean, and credit to Kevin Williamson, too, for that wonderful script.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: um, yeah, I actually was fortunate I got to have dinner with Wes, um, with Silvio Horta, the writer we had dinner with Wes one night um, before we started production of the movie and we just got to have dinner and just ask him a whole bunch of questions and, and just spent a really lovely night with him. And, um, yeah, it was just, we were just so honored to, to to meet the great man and to, you know, to say, look, we're about to make a movie to, uh, to, to appeal to the same audience that you just opened up the screen, you know, kind of, you know, seeking his blessing in a way, you know. And he told me uh, good advice. He said the first thing that the audience has to fear in any movie is the filmmaker. They've got to make they've got to believe there's a madman at the wheel who's capable of doing anything <laughs> to terrify them. So, Silvio and I took great note of that when we were working out the opening sequence to make that as, uh, as terrifying as we could.
0: Mm-hmm, I see. Yeah, I think that's that's good advice, and it, it certainly applies to Wes Craven's movies. Um...
1: Oh, it sure does. Yeah, he practised <laughs> what he preached. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Did you experience that um, on a level, um, like the when you have studio backing and you have higher production values and, and, and everything, uh, did you experience more pressure um, to sort of turn in a uh, commercial not, product?
1: Not on that movie. I mean, there was, a, there, was a, there was definitely a degree of pressure because I was making my first film and I wanted to impress the studio very much with how I shot it. But I've always, uh, even my short films and stuff, I've always been very visual with the way I, um, I, I staged things and the way I used the camera. So I wanted to make sure that the rushes that the studio were getting every day looked fabulous, and they were really they were really happy with what they were seeing. And I made sure that I moved that sequence, the opening sequence, up early in the schedule so we'd have a completed section of the movie that they could see with, you know, we could edit it, we put sound and, and, and music to it, temporary music to it, just so they could get a sense of a chunk of the movie uh, as, it, as it would look finished. And that gave them a huge amount of confidence in me. Mm. And um, it took a hell of a low of pressure off me once they'd um, given such positive feedback to that sequence. So yeah, we were we we're strategic in terms of how we how, how we schedule that in the um in the fifty day shoot. <laughs> uh,
0: let the executives feel at ease, and then <laughs> you're allowed to do what you want. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> now they were a wonderful studio. I've, I've never been so supported by a studio while since. Actually, Phoenix were just a delight to work for
0: now let's talk a little bit about your style since you mentioned the camera and everything um i notice very much that you move the camera a lot there's always uh, movement um like a a lot of pants a lot of movement a lot of um you know basically the camera rarely stands still and i imagine that it's difficult to edit um when uh, you don't really have those um those shots where everything stands still
1: uh it's you know, I'm very careful when i'm shooting um because my background is in editing so i um you know to do some of those elaborate shots that, that eats up a lot of your shooting time because you're setting up you know big crane moves and and, and it all takes time and that means that you're you, you have you have to basically the trade-off You you can't go in and get a whole lot of coverage on a sequence where you've got some elaborate camera movement And um, I'm always thinking like an editor when I'm shooting. I'm always thinking what's the shot that comes right before the shot that I'm doing and what's going to come immediately after it in the edit. And I'm always aware I know where my cut point's going to be. So I always make sure that at the point that I need to come out of a moving shot, um, I I have either a matching moving shot or or some other way of getting out of the thing. So uh, I very carefully storyboarded the film so I could do those kind of shots without um, backing myself into a corner. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of um, uh, Sam Osteen, the the editor who did Chinatown and, and Rosemary's Baby, and um, I, I talked to his wife or widow, uh, Bobby Osteen, and she mentioned that Sam thought it was always like jumping into a moving car. Every cut was like jumping into <laughs> a moving car <laughs> because the camera was always moving.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, well, it was, a, it was a little bit different in the 90s. I mean, we had an audience that had grown up on MTV. And, um, you know, you look at some of the um, the later 80s movies, like you look at Randy Allen's Nightmare on Elm Street, and there's some really audacious camera moves in there. And then the, look at all the Sam Raimi stuff and Catherine Bigelow's movies and even Carpenter's movies, he moves the camera to uh, quite a lot. And um, so I just thought, you know, the, the audiences would be okay with that kind of style, you know, if we're a little bit flamboyant uh, with the camera sometimes. But it's also, look, it's a motion picture. I always think a motion picture should move. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: It's true. I think that's why they're called motion pictures, right?
1: Yeah, as long as there's not unmotivated camera movement, as long as the camera's moving for a reason, I think I think um, you can get away with it.
0: <laughs> now, one thing I really love about your images is uh, you spend a lot of time, I think, on textures, um, like the lighting textures. There's a lot of... You have a lot of sequences in the in the rain or in the rainstorm, yes. which does things with just the image and the lighting in the um, in the frame, but also reflections, reflections of water, or um, well, yeah. That...
1: What is the, what is the filmmaker's friend? I've always thought. Even my student film Silent number, we, we lit through this water that was coming down these big uh, glass windows, mm-hmm. and it created. I mean, it was sort of it, it evokes parts of Suspiria to me, which is a film that I've always loved stylistically um you know i just we we were we were coming right up against it with urban legend in terms of reality we didn't want to make it so stylish that it didn't feel real uh we were trying to create a a middle ground where we could have a bit of style but it was also still grounded in some kind of reality uh i just watched james Wan's malignant last last night which got a lot of great things about it but the the lighting is very artificial (laughs) it doesn't feel like the real world and but so, you know that, that, but that's the style that he was embracing i think he was going much more of a Dario Gento Mario Bava kind of fun lighting palette so you know it's all it's all just about how what sort of lighting uh, style you set for the movie and then you've got to stick with it you know that's that that becomes your your, your color palette
0: mm-hmm. i think that's a that's a direction you went into more with your second film with valentine um which yes looks more it has i think that has that it has an Italian influence. like. Oh, it's very it. much
1: a Giallo-inspired movie. It was like, it, it, I wanted it to be a hybrid of an American 80s slasher film and, uh, you know, an Italian Giallo. So, um, yeah, I was very happy with the, the way those two styles merged in that movie. And it, 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 it still had that element of a, a little bit of heightened style to it. But um, not so much that it took you out of the reality of the film.
0: Mm, I think it it's noticeable very much in this segment at the art uh, exhibition. Yes, that, that's uh, probably where we
1: get our most flamboyant with that sequence and yeah, um, that was always kind of a big centerpiece um you know, kill for that movie. So a lot of time and resources were dedicated to getting that sequence uh, working.
0: <laughs> mm, <I can laughs> it's good fun. It's it's an amazing sequence. Just the, the visuals of it. Um, well, they, we had a
1: we had a relatively limited set we could shoot that on. So what they did is they made the set modular, and they would give me this little miniature version of all the panels that I could move around on a board. Uh-huh. And I could come back the next day and give it to the production team and say, okay, day after tomorrow, move the panels into this configuration because I'm going to shoot the reverses, and we wanted we wanted to make it seem much bigger than it was. So. It was clever how they were able to make it modular and, you know, overnight they could move the panels and then the following day we could shoot in a different configuration. So that was one way we sort of extended the scale of that particular set.
0: It's kind of funny how everybody in the movie says that he's such a bad artist because I look at that art <laughs> exhibition and i was, I'm like, yeah, I would like to see that. I would like to go through that <laughs> maze and and see all those video screens.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was kind of wild he, um uh, yeah, he was he was an interesting character, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there's another urban legend in in Valentine too, the one with the contaminated food, like the maggots in the um
1: Yes, <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> I had to
1: sneak one more in. I hadn't quite finished with the. <laughs> but,
0: but overall, Valentine is, is, is much more. Of, uh, it is a straight horror film um, that doesn't really have a lot of those references and, and uh, ironic comments. Um, I think. No, we
1: were we were playing more with just Valentine iconography in that movie, and um, you know, and it's ultimately it's a revenge film. It's a it's a re- ultimate revenge of the nerd movie. You know, someone who just simply couldn't get over his um his childhood.
2: <laughs>
1: so, but it was fun in that film to really foreground really interesting and strong female characters. And it was probably a little bit ahead of its time when it came out. It's been embraced more later by a different kind of audience in a different era. So, um, I've I've always I'm pleased that films had a bit of longevity because I certainly got excoriated for it at the time, uh, which I never quite understood. I always tried to make a good old fashioned eighty style slasher movie, but. Maybe the genre had just run its course at that time and it was, you know, ripe for discovery later.
0: I think so, too. I mean, there was a point even in the 80s where it felt like, oh, another slasher movie. Um, Yeah, we've had enough of this now. (laughs) Okay. And then 20 years later, we still have, oh, another slasher movie. And there was just so many of them, I think, that um, some of them really had to take a while before you sort of saw what they had to offer. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the... everyone
1: saw this blueprint for making money with with, with li- limited outlay of resources. I mean, Halloween only cost $300,000, and they did it with pretty much no stars. And it was a guy with a knife. And, you know, what, what all the imitators seemed to forget was that um, Carpenter built suspense through ex- expert craftsmanship and cinematic technique in that film. That seemed to be missing from a lot of the Halloween imitators. You know, he's, uh, he was um, often imitated, never bettered.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, I think it still stands as one of the brilliant horror movies. Oh, it um, really
1: does. And Deborah Hill became a good friend of mine. For uh, she was instrumental in getting me into the Directors Guild and helping me get my work visa to do Urban Legends. And, um, and you know, I remember the first time I met her in her office. I came in like a total nerd with my val- with my uh, Halloween laser disc for her to sign. And, <laughs> and she, beca- she became a really good friend and mentor of mine. And we, we even caught up a couple of times when she was in Australia. And yeah, she was wonderful. I was devastated when we lost deborah but um but i definitely um you know i have a huge debt of uh, gratitude not just for all the help she actually gave me with my career but just early on for, just as an inspiration and mm-hmm. for and for setting me on that path in the first place
0: mm-hmm. yeah i mean she was involved with so many great movies it's
1: it's uh... she was she was she was just a wonderful person just a, a gorgeous human being and i yeah i really loved her mm-hmm
0: yeah, speaking of that, that um, like the, the, the female characters in in Valentine, um, I always sort of took it as a like a, a dark take on a romantic comedy, um, but also <laughs> yeah. like a, a, a really it's almost a feminist picture um, in that the it men it's, it's are like so a, useless.
1: It's, it's like a really <laughs> dark, fucked up version of Sex in the City. <laughs> <laughs> Sex in the City with a body count.
0: <laughs> Do you, when you when you create characters, do you feel that um, they have to be likable or, or sympathetic or um, because Valentine has a lot of unpleasant characters? Um, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah,
2: well,
1: all the men in Valentine. Are, um, I mean, that's that's kind of the running joke in Valentine is all the men are, are creeps. The only decent guy in the movie is this recovering alcoholic played by David Boreanaz, and. We and all he's know the what killer. ends up yeah he gets <laughs> revealed as the worst of them all, so that was kind of the ongoing joke the, the, the key in that one was to kind of include the audiences into what it's kind of like for women uh, in the dating scene and some of the toxic masculinity that they come up against you know i mean um you know we we, we drew very broad stereotypes in that movie because it's supposed to be a little bit of fun too it wasn't it wasn't a straight dark and uh deep uh, horror psychological study of valentine's Day uh, you know it's a fun slasher film, but we did have a lot of fun there with the um, the male characters.
0: What I find interesting in, in Valentine is with the opening sequence, um, you sort of identify with a killer in a way. Um,
1: yes, because you... we're putting the audience in that position where, he, where they're experiencing the humiliation with him.
0: I think that's an interesting choice because, uh, I mean, for the rest of the movie, you don't even know who he is. He hides behind a mask and it could be anybody who, f- from the yeah, cast... we, we
1: had we had to convey the the depth of the um, the humiliation that he suffered in order for the, it, for order not just to, to justify what he does, but for, for it to make some kind of sense. Because if it wasn't, um, if he wasn't humiliated to that degree, um, you know, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked. But Once again, it's not the women ultimately responsible for his huge humiliation. They might reject him and and taunt him a little bit, but it's those four bullies. So I thought if there's ever a sequel sequel to Valentine, you should go after those little fuckers. Take them out.
0: Yeah, I think there's also an interesting uh, point of view there because a, a, a lot of criticism was always leveled at those horror films for being misogynistic, and uh, I guess a couple of them are. But um, I always seen it as a case where you know you have strong female characters, you have uh, female characters who are proactive and who know how to defend themselves, um, who are the heroes of the stories.
1: The the slasher film, I mean, the Aliens got a lot of credit at the time for being the first film, uh, or even the first Alien put um, a, woman, a woman in that role where she was kind of playing the traditional male role in a, in a movie. But you look at all the slasher films, it's always been a woman who fights back and prevails against the killer in those movies.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so uh, I don't know if you go so far as to call them feminist, but I, I, I would say that's a, that's a good counter to the argument that these films are misogynistic. I'm um, always saying Jason and Michael Myers are equal, equal opportunity murderers and they're happy to kill as many blokes as they are, the, the, the ladies in the films.
0: hmm <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um, as in Valentine I mean um, it could be easily set up that he just takes revenge on the girls who rejected him but uh, basically re- takes revenge on the whole world
1: <laughs> yeah he's, he's pissed off at everybody in that
0: <laughs> <laughs> well he's no angel <laughs> no
1: that's right exactly there's my that was my one meta moment <laughs> <laughs> and
0: was it was the Cupid mask in that movie was that supposed to look like Joshua Jackson
1: no, um, it was actually uh, that mask was designed. Um, uh, I remember my wife and I going off to um, Barnes and Noble or Borders and buying these books on Botticelli, and we were just going through picking out iconic cherub images that we liked. And we found one particular painting that just nailed the look I was after, and we gave that to design to K and B, and that's they kind of they designed it based on a Botticelli cherub. Mm-hmm. So that's where it came from. It was originally a pig's mask in the movie.
2: When <laughs> Donna and
1: Wayne Powers wrote it. And, you know, that would have been freaky enough, but it just didn't feel Valentine enough. So we, we, we decided a, a, a cherub's mask might look really creepy, and I was very pleased with how that all came together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's getting progressively more difficult to come up with a with a look for the killer in slasher movies because... In yeah, you know, story sure, like...
1: <laughs> especially when you need to hide their identity and make it somewhat plausible. That's why we opted for a generic kind of parker in Urban Legend because it could be... Something that enough people in the campus might have. It became a bit of a running joke that so many people <laughs> had the same Parker. We sort of lent into the silliness of that too.
0: Yeah, true. I think Roger Ebert made a little bit of fun uh, with that in his in his review. Um, yeah, he did.
1: He, he uh, I often found Ebert missed the point when it came to the entire genre. <laughs> he definitely yeah, was not my target audience for the film. <laughs>
0: It's true. I remember his his review of one of the early Friday the thirteenth movies where he was so appalled yeah, at how the yeah, audience reacted.
1: That, yeah, he gave he gave Betsy Palmer's name out to the um to the audience and encouraged them to write letters to her, you know, to admonishing her for being in the movie. I mean that's outrageous. <laughs> that's that's definitely stepping beyond the line of film criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I think ultimately, Ebert and Siskel uh, help the box office, but all their condemnation of those movies. <laughs> I think slasher fans like if it's upset those two guys, that it becomes essential viewing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that was true generally for horror cinema back then when, you know, serious film criticism said that it's not a film that you want to see, then you you absolutely know that you want to see it. <laughs>
1: That's right. It was just the same as sticking an R rating on a movie if you're 15 years old. It was like, well, I need to see this film. It obviously has elements that I want to see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's this uh, German film encyclopedia um which is one of the biggest film encyclopedias in the world, I think it's the, the only ongoing print encyclopedia um, in the world. Uh, the the uh, Encyclopedia of International Movies is actually put oh, wow. out by the Catholic Church. <laughs> right. oh, they, have, wow. they have a media commission. And so with most horror films, uh, you know, they were basically disgusted by the film. And they had this little uh, phrase at the end of the review, which said, we we advise against it. And that that sort of became like a stamp of approval. You you knew if you were a horror <laughs> okay. fan, then you know if the Catholic Church says we advise against it, then yeah, yes, well. that
1: would that would be a green light to me to immediately go and seek out that movie.
0: <laughs> I was always waiting for somebody to put that on a poster, you know, to <laughs> as a recommendation.
1: <laughs> well, my third movie, Storm Warning, is is still to this day banned in Germany. So I was I was kind of very surprised <laughs> at that. Because it's only got an MA rating in Australia, which is like a step below an R rating, and there's plenty yeah. of R-rated films in Australia that are available
0: in Germany. So,
1: I thought they they definitely took a strong stance against my movie, um, Storm Warning.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean it's gotten better um, in in Germany with um, censorship and everything, but there are still a couple of movies which are complete no goes in a way. Um, I think there is a cut version of of Storm Warning available um i don't know how much is missing but um it's a shorter version i mean i can imagine the parts that are missing (laughs) i imagine there's quite there's probably been a minute of it missing
1: (laughs) (laughs) but um i'm actually working there's a lovely gentleman at turbine media that i'm working with who's trying his best to get the film unbanned in germany so um it's an ongoing um, process at the moment because he's very keen to release a proper blu-ray edition there so that'd be really great if that happens
0: I actually work together with Turbine Media. Uh, I create special features for them. So, oh, well, then um... you
1: know Christian uh, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the,
0: yeah. The, um, he does the licenses for the, – he's the buyer for the company. Oh, he's a
1: lovely man. He's been sending me special edition um, of – he sent me the 4K Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he's going to mm-hmm. get me the 4K Hills Have Eyes. Um, he's a good guy. Very fond of Christian.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff coming from them. There's a great edition of Pitch Black uh, coming out. Uh, oh in wow! I'll have to
1: uh, i have to hit him up. I um I, I just occasionally write Christian a very nice email to catch up, and he's always he's always very very generous. <laughs>
0: hmm Yeah. Uh, um. There are a couple of interviews that I did for the for the box. A couple of features that I that I made with uh, the writer of Pitch Black and John Cox, the animatronics uh, supervisor. Oh, of, nice. Um, oh, I'd love to see those. Um. So yeah, I'll I'll ask Christian if um. I'll tell him, but um, uh, I'll I'll definitely mention it. Um, And I would really look forward to seeing a a special edition of Storm Warning here.
1: Yeah, it would be really nice for it to come out properly finally.
0: How much of a different experience was that shooting um, Storm Warning in Australia versus uh, shooting those two slasher movies in America?
1: Oh, it was different in in a number of ways. I mean, um, I had a lot more freedom and a lot more time in post-production on um, on my two Australian films. I, I even wrote the score to those two movies. I had so much time in post to do that. Uh, it was yeah, it was, just, it was fewer resources, much fewer days to shoot the picture, but I had a really terrific crew. They worked really hard, and we um, we had a wonderful time on that on that uh, movie. I uh, I had a lot more studio interference on Valentine than I ever did on Urban Legends, so. And a lot of the violence um, got trimmed out of the movie, even after the MPAA-rated Valentine R. The um, studio decided to cut some of the stuff out um, because they were concerned because of Columbine and they'd been associated with The Matrix, which had at the time sort of been you know linked to the Columbine um, massacre because mm-hmm. the kids were wearing trench coats and, and all the guns and everything. So they were very um, nervous about the content of Valentine. And uh, at the time, Warner Brothers hadn't directly produced a hell of a lot of horror films. They weren't really known like they are these days for producing a lot of horror. At uh, the time of Valentine, it was very, very rare for them to do a film in that genre. So, um, yeah, it was, it was much different working in Australia. I got to work with um, uh, Everett DeRose. I've been a big fan of for years and years. He wrote so many classic Australian genre films. Mm-hmm. And he and I worked on both those movies together in Australia. And um, I loved that experience.
0: It kind of feels like Storm Warning is a film that couldn't be made in America at all. Uh, no.
1: Because it's no, such it's an extreme mu- it's very film. Much a, it's very much... Well, he, he, Everett wrote the script in the 70s, so it, it kind of feels and behaves like a 70s exploitation movie. Um, in Everett's original script, the couple get stripped naked and they spend half the film actually naked and we, we're not going to go that far. <laughs> It'll be banned everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, it was it was fun to be able to just slip my hair down and do something with a bit of teeth. And um, you know, I always used to love old school practical makeup effects and we had a ball designing some really gory kills in storm morning. It was it was great fun. I felt like I was fifteen all over again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you think there's a limit to um how far a horror film can go?
1: Yeah, I do I, I do actually. I think there's certain subjects that you just don't touch. You know, in, in the interest of good taste, I, I, I you know, that involves anything involving children, and um, like I thought, a Serbian film went um, a little bit too far for my taste. This is a very good film, but it's um, mm. it's it's not something that I personally want to um, go to. I mean, I know filmmakers like Cronenberg think all censorship is bad, and I agree with him. I, I think censorship itself um, is wrong. It's it's not up to somebody else to make a decision what is acceptable viewing for an adult audience, but. I firmly believe in classification. And I think um, you know, certain films should not be available to um kids. That that, that, that said, I was the I was the fourteen, fifteen year old kid desperate to see every R rated film I could get my hands on. But um there was just there's just certain films that I just think maybe you wouldn't um you know you wouldn't want your child seeing certain things at the wrong age. You know, I mm-hmm. certainly I was editing Storm Morning* in my home with a very young son. Um, uh, I had to make sure that uh, the, the screen wasn't freeze-framed at certain points because it might have caused lasting psychological damage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's true. It, it is a disturbing film. Um, it, it definitely is. A... Not for children. Not for no, um,
1: no. But it's a feminist movie in the end too. It's it's like it's it's about mm-hmm. um, my politics are on full display there. You know, I am um, I'm a very liberal kind of guy, but when it comes to law and order and um, <laughs> and uh, I, I I I'm, you know, I'm I, I think we're way too lenient on certain perpetrators of certain crimes and. Anyway, Storm Morning was a chance for me to just um, <laughs> enact some fitting rough justice on these people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's definitely rough justice. Yeah, they they
1: definitely earn what they what they get. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure when you see that with an audience, uh, all the men in the audience go, ooh Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. That was, that was the scene that I was looking at. I mean, my, it was my wife who said, no, you've got to go and you've got to make the movie because of that scene. Um I was thinking, how am I gonna do this? You know, but um we ended up figuring out a way to make it work on screen and, and get get the desired response without um being too, you know, graphic. We just give just enough information so you know what just transpired and it takes a couple of beats before people kinda realise the penny drops, what just happened? Oh,
0: oh <laughs> and then they react. So yeah, that's
1: um that's always fun to watch with people.
0: I kind of got tense um, as soon as she builds this little prop um, mm-hmm. and she explains, okay, well, this is um, what I'm thinking about this. Yeah, um, yeah. And you sort of know, okay, you, you're not introducing that just to you know let it go <laughs> at the end of the movie. That, that, that There's going to be some scene where that comes into play. Yeah, it's and like so...
1: introducing a gun in the first act. You've got to fire that gun in Act 3, otherwise it's a way you way <laughs> introduce that particular element to the movie. So, yeah, yeah. set up and pay off
0: so the, the the whole sequence where she's led up the stairs and everything i i, I sort of felt like really tense and like oh okay, i know what's going to happen now
1: <laughs> yeah she's walking kind of uncomfortably all the way up those stairs and it's, it's just just laying just enough information for you to start <laughs> dreading what's going to happen to to him you know, <laughs>
0: you know? yeah I was reminded of uh, one of the Italian genre films, I forget which one it was, I think one of the women in prison films by Bruno Mattei or something where uh-huh. um, I think the girl sticks a, she, she has like a razor blade um, and um, like a cork, um, like from a wine yeah, bottle. That, that,
1: that rings a bell. I'm trying yeah. to remember the film, but yeah, yeah, yeah I gosh. think that might have definitely been in Everett's uh, mind when he, um, when he conceived of that sequence. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, very brutal. But again, yeah, the men are, are completely useless in the movie. I mean, she's the one who basically does most of the the, the saving. I mean, he's knocked out early on. Um, yeah, game. we have to we have to incapacitate
1: him, so it's uh, it's up to her to to save the day. And I know Rob was very frustrated playing that character. He said to me, "Can I at least kill the dog? <laughs>
2: <Can> <laughs> let, me,
1: let me kill somebody."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and that was that was a lot of fun.
0: I think that's a very refreshing take because we see so many movies where you know men save the day and the women sort of admire them for that. Or um... yeah, exactly. We 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 definitely wanted to make that all about um, you know
1: the, the the title. It's it's referring to her. You know, mm-hmm. she, she is the storm that's coming. So um, yeah, we def- we definitely wanted to make it uh, very female centric, and she's um, you know, it's she 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 plays that uh, the, the the classic hero of that movie
0: hmm now when you do the the music to um your own film does that influence the the way that you directed it as well
1: uh no I mean I kind of had in my head an idea of where I was going with that score but um I ended up scoring that film three different ways and then the final scores end up some sort of elements of the three passes that I did on the film um you know i i kind of all, all the musical decisions I made in in post production, and, and the music was written to support the images that I'd shot, not the other way around.
0: Did you want to uh, do the music for Valentine and Urban Legend as well?
1: Not an Urban Legend. It would have been crazy because um, uh, we only had 13 weeks of post production. And, um, oh. you know, I wanted a full orchestral score. And, uh, you know, it was, it, I'd always wanted to work with Christopher Young. He was the one composer I had my heart set on. So I was overjoyed when he said yes. But I did want to score Valentine. And it was Steve Merkiewicz, my editor, who talked me out of it. He'd done several films with John Carpenter. And he said, look, those, those films are done on longer schedules than, than your movie is. And, and when when we lose, uh, you know, we, when we gain a composer, we lost the director on those films. And Carpenter had done it many, many times. And he had a, a relationship with Alan Howarth at a studio. I would have been renting gear and starting from scratch. And it just didn't make sense in, in Vancouver mm. for me to to ultimately score the film even though warner brothers had agreed to let me do it you know they listened to some of my stuff and i even took the keyboard into the studio one day and was playing stuff for the music department and the the execs there and, and they, they loved kind of the direction i was heading in but it just made sense on that film to um to bring don davis in and don did a wonderful job and i absolutely loved working with don so um no i don't i, I as much as i would have loved to have scored valentine it was it was a smart decision to go with with a brilliant composer like don davis
0: did you have a say in the music selection, like uh, the songs in the movie? Yeah, on, on both the movies.
1: Yeah, they, they they send me truckloads of CDs that I was listening to every day. You know, on the way to set and on the way home every day, I'd be popping in these CDs from Warner Brothers and um, selected all the music that's in the film. There, there was, there's not a single track in, in Valentine that was forced on me. I, I,
0: I, was, I was allowed
1: to choose all the music. So I was very grateful for them to you know involve me to, to that extent.
0: Yeah, I love the, 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 the soundtrack to Valentine. Um, yeah, it's a terrific that's, CD. Uh, that's an amazing CD. I had that in my car yeah. uh, quite a lot uh, when it came out, and it introduced me to uh, Snake, Snake River Conspiracy. Yes. Yeah, Conspiracy, uh,
1: they're great. I mean, it was just, it's a, that's a terrific song in the film, and look, the, the whole soundtrack was, was terrific. Very, very happy with that score, uh, that you know, choice of music. I, I, I just always hope that Don Davis's score can come out, and I'm working with howling wolf records who just released my soundtracks to storm warning and a film i did called crawlspace i didn't direct Crawl Space; i did the score mm-hmm. for that they both won um best score at scream fest which was very um happy because they're the only two scores i've ever had uh, entered at scream fest so it was nice mm-hmm. to win best music both times for those but howling wolf and i've d- developed a nice relationship and we're currently working with warner brothers to get don's score released on cd so um we are working on that in the background
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a nice treat. Um, there was during a time when uh, mostly when you uh, you got a soundtrack CD, you had all the songs on it and then maybe yeah, exactly. one or two tracks from the composer, which didn't really fit the mood of the, 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 yeah, the rest of the album. Yeah, Urban
1: Legend? That we were told we could have 15 minutes of the orchestral score before a whole lot of royalty situations kicked in and all the individual musicians would have had to be paid, which mm-hmm. would have made releasing the score unviable. So Chris released the soundtrack through um, himself and he sent me a whole pile of them. So I do have a CD of the whole Urban Legend score, but it's not uh, commercially available, unfortunately. But mm. on Valentine, Don's the only performer. All the orchestral uh, sounds in that film are all, are all him. They're either samples or him playing um, the instruments in. So uh, it's a different situation. We can actually release the Valentine score without yeah, all those problems.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that would be cool. But yeah, the soundtrack, I think, makes the film so much of a time capsule uh, that it's amazing. Yeah, it always
1: does. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the songs that you use and it's the um, the computer screens. Whenever anyone's on the computer searching, <laughs> you know straight away which area. you're in. <laughs> no one yeah, can that's... predict what the future's going to look like <laughs> with computers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right, the search engine where they enter Jeremy yeah. Melton. Like, what kind yeah. of site is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I cut away from that as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always aware of how quickly a, a computer screen dates a movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I kind of like the fact that you you see um, the era a movie was made in. Um, I know a lot of people don't really like that. Um, they want movies to be timeless in a way, but I think timelessness is something that's not part of the you know, the way things look or the way things sound, it's something in the story that makes it timeless. Yeah, that's right.
1: That's right. It's actually funny when I look at Jaws and Jaws 2, I always think Jaws 2 is much more dated in terms of its fashions and it's, uh, because you've got a lot of younger characters and it's just somehow more, a little more dated than the original Jaws. There's something Mm -hmm. sort of classic and timeless about the first Jaws.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Now, you did another film in Australia, Long Weekend, um, a remake of one of my favorite uh, Australian horror films, or maybe one of my favorite horror films in general. Um, Yeah, it's a great
1: movie, the original. Love that film.
0: The interesting thing about a remake is always how much do they go away from the original, what do they change, or what do they leave in the script, and um, I was very surprised how close to the original your remake of, of Long Weekend was how much yeah, discussion was there about how to in which direction to go?
1: Oh, I said to Everett, I want to make a, a faithful remake of that story. You know, if we start changing everything around, then it's not Long Weekend anymore. It's like what I loved about the original film was its ambiguity and the way that the characters, uh, the, the, the the full extent of that problems doesn't get revealed until later in the movie. So it just it was my decision. I wanted to make it very faithful to the first film. A lot of people hadn't seen the first Long Weekend in Australia. It's I think it's more widely seen in Europe. Than mm-hmm. it ever was in the United States and Australia, and um, we wanted to make a horror film that was kind of with a bit of an eco theme to it because it just seemed more relevant to do it in, in, um, in what was it, two thousand and eight than it was even when they did it in nineteen seventy eight. So uh, the themes felt, you know, more resonant uh, in that era as well, uh, given whatever it was trying to say about, you know, the human beings' incompatibility with Mother Nature. Hmm. So. Yeah, it was it was really fun to to do that project, and it was really fun to do a film with only two actors, essentially. You know, I got to work really closely with Jim and Claudia on that film, and had a wonderful experience with those two guys.
0: And again, I think that's where the uh, the ability to create unpleasant characters, I think, comes into play because these two aren't nice people. I mean,
1: no, they're not sympathetic.
0: Uh, um, I mean, she's a bit better. She has a couple of moments, too, where you think, oh, my God. But, uh, I mean, he's basically the, the asshole <laughs> in the story. Uh, but yeah. both of them are really uh, very, very edgy characters. You don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time with them out in the wilderness.
1: No, I think that's, you know, it might have put some people off the movie because we took that approach. But um, I just embraced the chance to do something that was different like that, which wasn't as uh, a conventional kind of approach. To a, to, you know, to where you'd set up characters that you're going to spend an entire movie with. But that's kind of the theme of the film: is you know these these two people are so toxic, they're toxic with each other, they're toxic to the environment around them, and they ultimately lead to their own destruction.
0: What I really find interesting about that story is that usually horror movies have a sort of, let's say, point of no return. There's usually a taboo that's being broken, something that you're not supposed to do, and then it happens, and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Um, and a long weekend. Long weekend doesn't really have that moment. You kind of feel that it. it that moment happened long ago, long before the movie even started. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I, I think that was always Everett's uh, intention.
0: Maybe it's the the point when they talk about, um, you know, what happened in their relationship. I think that's maybe the point that. Um, yeah, you know, everything's
1: broken. There's an affair. There's an uh, an aborted baby. It's, it's just there stuff that they just couldn't recover from. Mm-hmm. And this. Weekend Away was supposed to be a last kind of grasp to try and make things work, and it's sort of a revelation for both of them that that relationship's dead in the water.
0: Uh, was it important for you to, to, to keep that sort of
2: doomed
1: yeah, feeling I wanted, for the characters? I wanted, I wanted it to be very faithful to everett's it's in the original intentions, and um, I think to change all those things, you fundamentally changing off the point what what, what the movie's ultimately about. And um, I wanted to I wanted to preserve all those elements of, that, that I loved about the original I think that's why the original works so well.
0: Yeah, the original was always one of my, um, like a, sort of an underground um, cult movie that I could recommend to people and they've never heard of it.
1: Um, yeah, it's, um, I think international audiences found it a lot more interesting than Australian audiences did because we're so familiar with the Australian bush that um, it doesn't seem exotic or, or strange to us, but I think it worked much better for international audiences. So, um, you know, since I had a similar response, I had much bigger reaction, better reaction to the film in Germany than I did in Australia, just like the original film did. So um, it's interesting how that um, that has persisted.
0: Yeah, I guess the the, um, the nature that you see in the film is so much more amazing to us because, um, well, those are images that we don't see uh, every day. Yeah, exactly. The original actually... There, there was a like a cheap DVD release of that film, uh, which I had for years, and it's only come out uh, properly. I don't know, maybe two or three years ago. So I think it's
1: yeah. Turbine put out a really nice media book edition
0: of it too. Exactly. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about.
2: They see again. Mm.
0: Turbine. Those are <laughs> they are really uh, a really great company, and and they are really put a lot important. of care into their releases. Yeah,
1: we need we need the companies that are focused on you know classic genre films and keeping them in circulation.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask you that, but uh, when's the next Jamie Banks movie due? Uh,
1: I'm actually in the negotiations to direct a new movie um, starting next year. So um, I'm, I'm off to the States to make a new movie. I can't say what it is, but I'm very excited about it. And it oh, okay, will be um, cool. a return to a, a genre that's very near and dear to me.
0: Oh, that sounds good.
1: Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. I'm really excited about it.
0: Were you ever involved in some of the um, like the urban legends uh, sequels? Or... No, no, they, they they offered the
1: sequel to me, but I but I was doing um, other projects at the time and working on Valentine, you know, getting that ready. So it, uh, I I thought about directing the sequel, but I didn't want to do the part two. I I was very happy with the one that I made and um, mm-hmm. just wanted to move on to something else.
0: And then you went into editing and and composing for other people um, for a while, so. Um...
1: Yeah, I've, well, I've always been an editor, and my buddy Mark Hartley um, uh, was, was making a, the, the definitive documentary on Australian genre cinema, and he called me up one day and said, I, I really need your help to edit this thing. It's going to be a monster. So I kind of did that between doing uh, Storm Morning and Long Weekend. And even when I finished uh, shooting Long Weekend, I had to come back and continue work on Not Quite Hollywood. So there's clips from both Storm Morning and Long Weekend in Not Quite Hollywood, but I was actually working, the bulk mm-hmm. of the work I did was between making those two movies. And then Mark asked me to score his other two documentaries. And I've got calls from other filmmakers to, and once they heard that I was scoring my own stuff, they asked if I would score stuff for them. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've agreed to do that for, for a little bit. But I haven't felt the urge to, uh, to do a film for a while. It's been a while since I've actually wanted to get back and, and direct another one. But um, I'm ready to do one now.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was a voluntary decision to step back from directing for a while. Oh yeah,
1: for sure, for sure. No, okay. I could have I could have kept making uh, stuff, but I, I I didn't want to. Um, yeah, lo- lots of personal reasons for that, but um, it just it was just uh, I was happy to take a little hiatus.
0: Yeah, those documentaries that you mentioned, um, I, I I've seen uh, um, all of them, all of Mark Hartley's documentaries, and
2: um, I was wonderful. kind of amazed
0: that that must have been so much work to to go through so much footage it was, so much it was beyond
1: footage. beyond what I could have imagined. it was we we had to take for not quite hollywood we had to go and rip dvds of the movies that we wanted to use and then we used to uh, striped time code onto those uh, ripped dvd uh, quick times that we were working with and then using those time codes to get a rough approximation of where in those movies the original elements might be, and then we went back to the to the film and sound archive and accessed the original negatives of all these movies, and had to transfer just the elements we wanted, then frame match, eye match them back into the movie. So that was incredibly laborious, and the amount of split screens and quick cuts in that documentary it was it was a massive job.
0: Yeah, and you had so many uh, people who, who were interviewed for the movie. Um, it, was, that alone. it was. It was
1: it just, just logging all those interviews and, and being able to find comments relating to a particular story. Um, that was a massive job. Um, it's one of, the, one of the biggest editing jobs I've ever taken on. But I really loved it, and I was really you know so glad to be involved in that film because it was the first time we'd taken a serious look at Australia's genre film history. It's like mm-hmm. those, those movies were mostly ignored. So um, mm-hmm. I was very happy that Mark, Mark asked me to be involved in that.
0: So how long did it take to uh, find sort of a through line through all of that material to find the, like the, the the structure of that documentary? We
1: worked seven days a week for for months. I mean, we were on that thing for a long time. It was a very, very long uh, period of post that we were on that picture. Wow. It's, it took a long time. Wow. <laughs> I wasn't involved in the editing of his second one, but I but I helped him cut Electric Boogaloo, and scored the last two um, documentaries for him. So that was more fun than I've ever had, had in my life doing the score for Electric Boogaloo. One day I'm working on the Charlie Bronson thing for Death Wish Three, and then another time I'm writing Chuck Norris on Ninja music, and then we're <laughs> doing something by Zeffirelli. So it was it was just I was able to do all sorts of different musical styles in that documentary, and it was just so much fun. Mm. One of the the most fun jobs I've ever had, actually.
0: Yeah, when I saw the documentaries, I always kept wishing that, you know, there were longer segments with the individual people because there are so many uh, interesting and, and great people in there. Um, who I feel they have so much to tell us um, and then sometimes they're only in there for a minute or two.
1: It's true. I mean, that's, that's why there's been so many DVDs mm-hmm. uh, released with uh, added extra interviews from not quite Hollywood. I mean, there's just mm-hmm. there, must be, there must be 50 or so DVDs that have come out <laughs> in the wake of that documentary that use footage from that documentary in there. So, um, yeah, we actually probably could have cut, uh, probably could have cut a TV series out of it. There was enough material. <laughs>
0: That would have been amazing, like a really comprehensive look at Australian genre cinema.
1: Yeah, we might still be editing it. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so how is the Australian horror scene or the, the, the genre cinema, how it, is that in comparison to the United States? Because Australia yeah. started very late doing horror films, basically only in the 70s.
1: Yeah, they, um, they've always been the, the, the red-headed stepchild of the um, Australian <laughs> industry, but they often tend to be the movies that travel the best and play in different parts of the world. So, um, you yeah, know, genre films have actually... I think Mad Dog Morgan was the first Australian film that ever sold uh, internationally at um, at, the, at the AFM or the Cannes Film Festival. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting how those genre films have always kind of um, worked well overseas, um, if not so well in Australia. But um, its I don't see that much production happening of genre films at the moment. But that said, I don't see that much production of, of, of much at all, given COVID and everything else that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm very happy that I've got a film to do stateside um, next year because um, I've actually got a TV project, a genre project that I'm working on here in Australia with a lot of other genre filmmakers that we've been trying to get set up. So I'm hoping by the time I finish my next movie, I mm-hmm. can come back and work on this series, which will be a really fun uh, project and get to work with some of my friends who, who make terrific genre films here too
0: is that kind of a like a masters of horror uh, yes very much so very okay. much
1: so idea oh, yeah. yeah that's 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 the concept for it at the moment so um, we're trying to get that set up
0: oh that's cool um, yeah it'll be really kind fun of, if to get that going I sort of noticed the Australian genre cinema coming back in the early 2000s what um, you know with, uh, yeah with like wolf, wolf, creek. wolf creek yeah yeah
1: wolf creek helped and that's the reason i i decided to make storm warning uh, out of australia because i'd seen wolf creek do um so well internationally i thought well, maybe audiences are now ready for films with funny australian accents i mean when the first mad max came out they dubbed mel gibson with an american <laughs> so
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> the accent didn't always work so well internationally
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember I saw a film called Body Melt. Uh, that was oh, yeah, Phil two. Brophy. I know Phil, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was, um, you know, the first time I saw it, I barely understood a word of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. But... It's like a different language.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Got more used to um, to the variety now, but, um, yeah. Um, so I could see why people are having problems yeah. with that. <laughs> it was a bit of an impediment
1: for a while there.
0: <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> strange. Do you feel that Australian genre cinema that they tackle different types of stories, or that they have different approaches to them?
1: Yeah, I think they do. I think Australians are like yeah, they're a bit, bit more ready to go for broke and just go for your throat. <laughs> we we don't mind upsetting mm-hmm. people and, and making some really <laughs> confrontational movies. I mean, my my mate Sean Burns made Sean the Loved Ones, which was terrific. I just thought re- really great kind of fusion of a John Hughes movie with a with a with a sick exploitation picture. So you know, it's it's fun. Um, Australians definitely have their own sensibility, mm-hmm. which I think is a terrific, terrific thing. You know, it's uh, it, the world needs variety, and there's all sorts of uh, horror encompasses all different styles and uh, tones and approaches. So it's um yeah, there's room for all of it.
0: I think it also always connects with the um like the culture it was made in and also the just the way the country looks um I mean Australia has such a specific look that um you know it it's 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 easy to use that for um a production as a sort of as a, a unique selling point
1: Yeah it is I mean the environment in Australia everything wants to kill you in Australia so it's um yeah there's there's, there's ample rooms of crocodiles and sharks and snakes mm-hmm. and god knows what else um the Australian environment is um You know, we're all terrified of the outback. We all cling to the 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 fringes of the country on the on the coasts. You know, (laughs) (laughs) no one wants to to face the terrors of the outback.
0: I think that's one of the the uh, the fascination. That's part of the fascination when you see a long weekend here in Europe, because like if you live in Germany, there's just no way you could get lost in the in in Mother Nature, um, right? The way they do there, because you know even if you do get lost in the woods, you would just have to walk a little while into one direction and there's the next city that we don't just right. <laughs> don't have those big spaces. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. That's one, one, one thing we've got to our advantage as horror film makers in Australia is the um, the, the, si- the size of the country. It is possible to travel a couple hours out of the city and get completely lost.
0: Mm-hmm. So does the, the, the project that you're planning to do in the United States, does that connect with uh, some of the like the American um, culture, the American landscape? Oh, it most piece, certainly like does,
1: that. yes. Yes, this mm-hmm. is an American movie through and through.
0: And I'm very much looking forward to seeing that.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully um, within the next few months we can announce it, but I'm already working with a fabulous screenwriter on the story, and um, I'm just really excited. It's uh, it, it, it will not be unfamiliar to you when when the project is announced.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about it.
1: Yeah, I wish I could say more about it at this stage, but my, yeah. um, unfortunately my lips are sealed.
0: No, I totally understand. Um, totally understand. Time yeah. will come when you can tell yeah, us more. Yeah, not, and, not, long. not um, long. I think everybody's excited to see another Jamie Blanks movie, especially since oh, there's like... so much interest in your in your films. I think in recent in recent. 2 or 3 years.
1: Yeah, I've, I've been really gratified that i um, you know, all this time later people still care about the movies and and, and they, they they pop up on social media all every day. So I'm really um I'm really grateful for that. It's nice to have made a couple of films that have stood the test of time, you know. That's really
0: nice. Did you expect the films to have such resonance um years uh,
1: I don't know if I expected it, but I I I hope that the people would continue to enjoy them in years to come and they wouldn't just disappear as, you know, part of their era you sort of hope that they cling on. I mean, there's plenty of films from that time that, that don't. People don't talk about it all the time, and um, it's nice that uh, I've made a couple that um, have resonated with audiences and continue to do so, and continue to find new audiences. You know, different generation of kids growing up. I mean, there's kids who've grown up with those movies who, you know, it's um, they're, they're, they're personal favourites. Just like I grew up with all my favourite movies. It's nice that there's some people out there who uh, think that way about the films that I've made.
0: Yeah, I think it com- becomes part of your, let's say, horror or education, the movies that you watch during a certain time in your life, right? That's um, right.
1: And they were all made with passion and love for the genre. I mean, there was nothing cynical. At no point was, was I just thinking this is a cheap cash-in, cash-grab. I wanted to make a really good film both both times and worked really hard on the craftsmanship of the movie and, and the look of the, the masks and the casting and, and the screenplays and the, and the cinematography. All of it um, was was done with a great deal of care, so... Mm. um yeah i'm i'm just pleased people still um st- still watch them and they're, and they're, and uh they're thought of well by yeah by the fans of the films
0: and i think it shows the the attention to detail that's uh, i think part of why the films um have such resonance like it, it come back to the opening sequence of of urban legend um like just the part with her in the car and she's singing along to the song. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's such off key, and then there's what, this one one moment where she doesn't remember the line and she yeah, just goes. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> And that feels so natural. That's you know that could be me um, singing along Yeah, we've along all to done that.
1: Song. And, and I just said to Natasha, you're, "You're you're every girl in this moment. You know, you're just you're you're any, anyone and everyone. Um, just just be yourself and." She, goes, well, she said in an interview once, like, well, I sing off-key. They want me to sing off-key. It's perfect. You know? I don't have to do any acting. <laughs> <laughs> She's a sweetheart. I, I adored working with Natasha. What a gorgeous girl she was. She's so lovely to work with and so easy to work with and just fully committed to the movie and the character. And I was very, very lucky to have a chance mm-hmm. to work with all those, all those actors were just terrific. It was a real privilege.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great cast um, in both movies, actually, um, I think.
1: Yeah, they were, um, I, got, I got really lucky. We cast, we cast really great people, and they um, they were all just, just a delight to work with. Um, it's just a very, very happy time in my life working with those people.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, it's such such a part of the films being a time capsule because so many of these actors went on to do um, a lot more stuff that got seen. Yeah, by, which was by so gratifying
1: people. because for some people this was their first big movie, and it was just it was it was really lovely. It made me so happy and proud of them all.
0: But that's also part, I think, of of the era because um, when you look back at the like the horror classics of the seventies and eighties, there were a couple of people who sort of went on to become bigger stars, like Jamie Lee Curtis, for example. Um, But a lot of those actors sort of disappeared or they sort of stayed in those, um, you know, with the small productions and they didn't really become uh, very well-known or anything. Um, Yeah, I
1: guess it's just the way it goes. I mean, there's only only room for so many big stars in Hollywood. Like I watched the other day, uh, He Knows You're Alone, and Tom Hanks has got a little role in that film. You know, it's a speaking role, but you'd never never mm -hmm. have guessed from that movie that he would go on to become, you know, the most, one of the most beloved actors in American history. You know, it's it's just yeah. funny how many actors started in slasher films. You know, you got Kevin Bacon in Kevin Friday Bacon the Thirties, and, and then and The Burnings just full of look famous faces. Holly Hunter and Jason Alexander are in that movie. Um, Fisher Stevens. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it's interesting. There's always um you know it's always George Clooney starting in uh, Return to Horror High and Attack of the Return of the Killer Tomatoes. Yes, yeah? So
2: <laughs> yeah. They've all
1: they all got to start somewhere. So um, but it was interesting. We inter- interviewed a lot of people for both Urban Legend and Valentine. So I'm not surprised that the ones we ended up casting ended up going on to other things because they were competing against really talented actors. I, I could have cast a totally different group of people in Urban Legend. They would have been wonderful as well. Uh, it's just that we chose those people because they were the best ones for the roles. But um, you know, their talent was obvious to me then, and I'm not surprised other directors auditioned them and looked at them and thought they'd be perfect for my movie. You know, they're just talented mm-hmm. people.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's it's actually difficult to pick out certain. Like individuals, and say, oh, she was great, or he was, he was good, because it's just a very good ensemble. Yeah, they um, worked really well together, and we and we cast them to work off
1: each other. You know, we we were very conscious of the kind of group we were trying to build, and um, yeah, it was just it was just a joy for me. I mean, they were, I was I was in my twenties, like most of the actors. It was just, we all we all just um, kind of. I was my first movie as well, so we were all just trying to do the best possible job we could because we were all grateful to have that job. And we really wanted to prove that we um, that we were worthy of, of, of more work, you know, and um, and to do a really mm-hmm. good job. So that was just a lovely experience. And, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, – st- I'm still very close with most of the cast on both those movies, and I'm just really, you know, just so proud of all of them. Do
0: you have a special process when you're working with the actors to get them to that emotional state, um, you know, that a horror film often requires?
1: Yes. Well, every actor is very, very different. So every actor has a different process that they need to get to a – a place like um the easiest one for me to work with uh, who had just had all those that stuff available straight away was tara reed you know, she had a big chase sequence in *A legend which required her to do all sorts of physical stuff and emotional stuff and she could just turn it on and off and was completely convincing in every you know, we used to call her one take tara because she <laughs> she nailed everything first time i mean i often would go for a second take because the camera or whatever but it was never because tara wasn't believable um, you know, she found that stuff really easy to do. Uh, Alicia, you know, we had to work in a different process because she had kind of a different uh, emotional arc that she had to go on and different kind of reactions that, she, that uh, than, than what Tara had to do. So mm-hmm. every actor was very different. Rebecca was very conscious of not wanting to go too over the top with her performance, but also wanting to lean into the, the camp just enough so that we know it's it's fun. I me. Mean, she's got a you know slide projector. <laughs> it's, we're not taking the whole thing too seriously. So, it's just a matter of finding uh, the right balance and the right tone for each actor, and um, you know, and just working with them because they've all got their own their own way of doing things and their own way of getting to where they need to be emotionally. And it's just my job to help them and and to get out of the way when I have to get out of the way and, and to provide assistance when they need
0: help. Yeah, one of the actors from from Valentine, which I found amazing, which um, it's, it's somebody that really isn't talked about a lot uh, it's Jessica uh, Capshaw uh, oh, she's brilliant um, when I rewatched the film um, I thought she's actually the most interesting character she and, is.
1: and as, as written that part was very very different Jessica brought a hell of a lot of that of that emotional cord of that character herself it wasn't always immediately on the page and she managed mm-hmm. to find just the right way in to that character that we like her, when she's and and, and she's you know she's used as, as a red herring, and and ultimately you know, there's a big twist involving her character at the end of the movie, but it all had to track and make sense. Actually, at one point she was that character was the villain in the story, and I I actually mm-hmm. altered it to make it to make it uh, David make make David Jeremy, uh, we sort of tipped the hat with the blood nose thing. It was kind of like you know yeah, yeah. I wanted a little bit of uncertainty about. Jessica, how could she be the killer if he saw the blood nose every time? And why would she be getting the blood? So just enough so that that final twist kind of makes sense. And Jessica nailed every single part of that. Um, yeah, she was, she is. She's one of the best things in the movie and um, an absolute delight to work with. And there was a lot, uh, you know, uh, not, not without a bit of nerves for me because her stepfather is one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. <laughs> so it was a bit of pressure directing her in her first big uh, role in a feature film. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we got that right. So I hope him, he's really proud of what she did in the film because I think she's mm. she's phenomenal.
0: Yeah, she's terrific. I mean, there's so much going on just in her face, um, and it's such an interesting character. She has so much frustration, and she has a certain mean streak. But she's also a tragic figure in a way. The, yeah, the she makes she's the most thing. complex
1: most complex character in the film. Yeah.
0: Um, and yeah, and those scenes easy. where she but she can always sense that in a way just in her eyes just the way she moves her mouth sometimes oh um, yeah just, and... just she's
1: there's so much nuance going on there and she's she she like i said she she brought a lot of that emotional core to the movie mm-hmm. and um the complexity uh to the character it's a it's a much better realization of the character on on camera than it ever was on the page so I, i'm always really grateful to jessica for just lending her talents to the movie um, and and doing such a beautiful
0: job now you mentioned that we were you were asked to do a Valentine 2. What would that sequel would have looked like?
1: Oh, it's only only as a joke, I mean, there was never any real serious talk about oh, okay. Sequelizing okay. Valentine um I don't think they ever had any plans for it to become a a franchise although a lot of people have asked me over the years is there ever going to be a Valentine too and
0: I'd be very happy to go and make one.
1: I just don't think there's much interest at Warner Brothers these days to do a sequel to that. Uh, that
0: yeah. film yeah well I think it's okay to have a, a, a film as a standalone picture yeah um, they I don't all have to be franchises they don't all deserve <laughs> a sequel you know it, it's yeah. kind of a,
1: it's told a story it's wrapped up on, you know it's a standalone film so it didn't yeah. need a part two
0: yeah, yeah, I think exactly. Not every film needs to be sequelized and have yeah, spin-offs that's right. and I mean, prequel- they're, they're always and... running out of ideas, so I'm
1: sure in ten years' time, someone's going to go and remake it or something,
0: <laughs> something will happen because they'll be out of
1: a, they'll be out of other horror. They'll have remade everything else, so <laughs> they'll eventually get around to that.
0: Probably with the next generation, right? Because at that time, uh, people remade a lot of the classic horror movies of the 70s and 80s. Like, you have The Hills Have Eyes and... and yeah, that's right. Nightmare I mean, there was and... talk
1: at one point that they, they were actually had it put into production and, and it got cancelled because of COVID. But there was an Urban Legendary boot happening
2: mm-hmm. um, Yeah, right.
1: with Colin Minahan. So, you know, they were going to remake that. So, I mean, look, they're doing a Know What You Did last summer as a TV series. There's a new screen coming out. So... Mm-hmm. It's uh yeah you know, the nineties are what's twenty years ago now so it's um <laughs> it's just just like we were doing in you know with with all the with all the seventies and 80s stuff back mm-hmm. in the two thousands.
0: Yeah, it's a new generation and horror is always sort of going in circles in a way. I think there's such a tradition to horror movies that's not that I think it's a, a stronger tradition than in other genres. Like you don't see a lot of comedies um, sort of referencing all of the classics from, from their genre.
1: Yeah, but well, I'm... they don't have the same fan base. They don't have the same fan base that are um, that are so passionate. Mm-hmm. Horror film fans, they're in it for the long term. They don't become horror fans at, f- at 15, and by 50, they don't care anymore. They're, they're in it for life. So mm-hmm. they um, it's a different – I mean, they, they don't have conventions for action and comedy movies. They have them for science fiction and horror films because it's a different fan base who have a totally different uh, relationship with the movies that, that they love.
0: Yeah, I think they sort of speak to something um, that's, I don't know, especially young people react to, um, because that's, like you said, that's the age where you usually fall in love with horror movies, like when you're 15 or something.
1: That's right. And um, they're often a refuge from all the crap you're going through as a young kid. You know, these movies mm-hmm. can be, um, I know that they certainly were for me and, and plenty of my friends who are now successful screenwriters and filmmakers have all said the same thing. They were so important during their use, these movies. So um and i don't think that's ever going to change
0: mm. no i think that um especially when you when you're a teenager you feel like so, you often feel like an outcast and you sort of try to grapple with the fact that um you know people are going to die and and there's uncertainty in the world and and stuff like that and exactly. horror movies are sort of a way to to deal with that but in a confined space in a safe space in a way
1: exactly Exactly, mm-hmm. horror fiction and horror movies have always had that function. You know, they um, they perform a psychological service, <laughs> unlike <laughs> some genres. You know, and they, they, they do have a have a psychological function as we we're growing up. That's why they're so popular.
0: Yeah, Wes Craven, I think, once said that horror movies are boot camp for the psyche. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. They're like they like a like a rehearsal for your own death.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, do you still follow um, all the horror movies that come out?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, no, no. Like I said, mm-hmm. you, if you're in it, you're in it for life. You no, know, I um, I, I watch I watch any, everything that comes along, and I try and stay in touch with what all the other filmmakers are doing, and um, I'll I'll, I'll always love the, the genre that will, that will mm-hmm. never change.
0: So yeah, the next projects we're going to ex- we can expect from you are going to be horror films. Oh yeah, too. the
1: only yeah. projects you can expect from me are going to be horror films in the in the near future. <laughs> I very much like to do a comedy and stuff, but um, you know, I, I, I'm. Built for this uh, kind of filmmaking, it's it's where my it's where my passions are, and it's um it's what I'm good at, you know. It's because I I love it, and um, Mm -hmm. I never do it cynically. I only only do every project with hundred percent conviction and and love for what I'm doing. And um, you know, probably long weekend was the closest I've been to be out of my comfort zone in terms of its topics and its characters, like we discussed. But I'm very very happy with um you know with the next project where I'm going to be. It'll be right in my sweet spot, so it'll be great.